I speak to you in the name of one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Please be seated. Good morning. God bless you. It's my joy and honor to be with you as always. This parable that we just heard by Jesus, it's a striking one. It cuts right to the heart. It even ends with, as the kids say, a bit of a mic drop on Jesus' part. He says, so it is for the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. What's going on in this passage? Well, if you walk through the story, Jesus tells this parable of a man who has an abundance of grain and crops from a well-yielding field. And he says to himself, well, what should I do? I know, I'll tear down my barns, I'll build bigger barns, and put all my stuff in there. And then I'll think to myself, excellent, I'm set for life. Did you catch that? He says to himself, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But that very night, the Lord says, fool, your life is demanded of you or your soul is required of you, which either means that he dies or he's called to make an account of the purpose of his life. And it says, those things that you've prepared, who will they be? So it is for the one who lays up the treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, this man, this rich man, not a real man, he's a man in a parable, he's a character in a parable, you can love him, you can hate him, you can castigate him, but I hope that we see a bit of ourselves in him so that we can get the spiritual principle of what Jesus is trying to get across to us. And you're saying, oh, preacher, you're really going to talk about money again? Look, we'll stop talking about money when Jesus stops talking about money. Jesus, <laughs> Jesus talks about money more in the Gospels than almost any other subject. Why? Because money means so much to him? No, because he knows the place that money has in our lives and the spiritual power that it can have and the spiritual power for good or for destruction. So he tells this parable and it appears that the man has fallen into four traps. I wanna tell you the four traps that the man has fallen into. Are you ready? Trap number one, the seduction of self-sufficiency. If you notice in the passage, he's the only character. This is a bit odd. In almost all of Jesus' other parables, there's more than one character. Think of the Good Samaritan. There's a priest and a Levite and the Samaritan and the man dying on the side of the road. But in this parable, he's the only one. And so he's fallen into a trap where it's all about him. The seduction of self-sufficiency. And the words that keep coming up are my, 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 and I, I, I. My crops, my field, my barns, my goods, my life. I wonder what I'm going to do. There's nobody else in the story. It can be so easy to think that we are the main character in this drama of life and that everyone else and everything around us is just sort of the staging for our great adventure. Friends, that is not a biblical or Christian way to live. Let us not fall into the trap of the seduction of self-sufficiency. Trap number two, the preoccupation with possessions. See, I've made them all rhyme a little bit to help you remember them. The preoccupation with possessions. He doesn't even talk about in the story about his fields or his business or his farm or his employees. And there's nothing wrong with building a business. There's nothing wrong with having a productive farm. There's nothing wrong with generating an income that can support a family or a community. But notice that in this passage, it's all about the stuff the possessions, 
such that he has to tear down barns in order to build larger ones for more and more stuff. You know, that hymn that we sang at the beginning, All Creatures of Forgotten King, it was written by St. Francis of Assisi. That's some of you knew that. St. Francis one time was walking along and the brothers said, Francis, could we have a prayer book? Simple request, right? But you know, Francis didn't even let the brothers touch money. And he said, you're gonna ask me for a prayer book and my answer is no. And they said, why? Well, because then you're gonna want a bag to carry it in. And then you're gonna want more books. And then you're gonna need a room to keep all the books. And then you're gonna need a library to keep all of the boxes of books. And then you're gonna need a monastery around the library. And then you're gonna need a whole staff to take care of the library and the monastery. And then you're gonna need an endowment to take care of the monastery and the staff. So no, you cannot have a prayer book, said St. Francis of Assisi. Let me direct your attention to all creatures of our God and King. Trap number three, the anticipation of arrival. You see, he has all this stuff stored up and he thinks, oh great, now I'm set for life. I have arrived at a time which I can rest, eat, drink, and be merry. And before we throw this guy under the bus, I think everyone in this room, at some stage in their life, has fallen in to the myth of arrival. I was picking on Father Mac earlier. He finished his PhD earlier this year, and I'm sure that there were times leading up to it when you thought, as soon as I finish this dissertation, then I'll be all set. And some of you have thought, as soon as the kids get off to kindergarten, then I'll be all set. As soon as the kids get out of the house, then I'll be all set. As soon as I start this new job, as soon as I move to this new condo, as soon as we get mom and dad settled in the new living situation, then I'll be all set. And you think you're going to sort of arrive. Friends, it never happens. And the Lord does not intend for it to happen. Because indeed, the Christian faith is not a destination. The Christian faith is a journey. The work has been done for us by Jesus Christ on the cross. And we are called to take up our cross and follow him. And that is something that lasts from cradle to grave. So don't fall in to the trap of the anticipation of arrival. Trap number four. The giving up on giving. Nowhere in this passage does it say anything about the man offering tithes, offerings, charity, generosity to God or to his fellow human being. It's just not there. And so this rich man and his barns, he's given up on giving. The Bible has some harsh words for us when we fall into this trap. This is the Lord speaking to the people of Israel in the book of Malachi, chapter 3, very famous passage. And the Lord says, will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. Forgive me, these are the words of the scripture. How do we rob you, say the people? In tithes and offerings, replies the Lord. The whole nation of you, because you are robbing me, is under a curse. When we give up on giving, says the Bible, it's as if we are robbing God and I suppose you could add to that, we are robbing our fellow man. So let's not dwell on all these curses, these four traps that the man has found himself in. What would be the way out? What would be the solutions? And so I have come up for you to counteract the four traps, the four trajectories, 
Shall we hear about the trajectories which biblical and Christian principles lead us into when it comes to money and possessions in order to find peace, in order to find trust, in order to find a better way forward? Trajectory number one, congregate in community. You see, the man has isolated himself with his barns, but we, brothers and sisters, are called into community. That's what we're doing right now. That's what you all are doing on YouTube. Even though we'd love to have you here and we welcome you back, if you're watching on YouTube, you're part of the community. We congregate in community because that's what God desires for us. Koinonia is the Greek term for it. And do you know, in the book of Acts, it really hits home that the apostles and the disciples, well, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together, and they had possessions in common. They gave to anyone who had need, and every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, and they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Now, doesn't that sound better? We are created to congregate in community, and therefore we will resist the traps that the man falls into. Let us be together. You know, I've never been so proud of All Saints Church when uh, a bit before COVID, there was a group of people that would often come to our family table service. They were from Joseph's house. Joseph's house is a home for people who are very sick and very poor. Many of them are dying of HIV or AIDS or other terminal diseases, and they live together in this rent-free establishment and they're taken care of. Well, a group of them would get in a van and come to our service on Sunday. And let me tell you, some of these folks were in rough shape. But they were welcomed. They were treated with such honor. One of them uh, was named Ramsey. What a guy he was. And they were so embraced by our community. And I would just watch and be so proud of All Saints Church when the folks from Joseph's house came in because they were saints of God just as much as anyone else. And you know, one of the great things about church is in a minute, we're going to have communion and everybody gets the same piece of bread and everybody gets the same sip of wine. Amen? Doesn't matter what your account balance says, doesn't matter what your zip code is, everybody gets one piece of bread and one sip of wine, and we are the body of Christ. Do you see how the Christian calling resists the traps of greed and self-sufficiency? Okay, number two, I gotta keep moving here. Um, trajectory number two, attack attachments. You see, the man has wrapped up his whole identity in this undue attachment to his stuff. And there's nothing intrinsically wrong with stuff. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with having nice things. But boy, can they get a hold on us sometimes, can't they? Look, I'm not standing up here being judgmental. I drive an Audi Q5, and I love it. <laughs> But let me tell you something, these things have a way of lodging in our hearts. You're among friends, so raise your hand if you've ever had a car or a pair of shoes that you spent a bit too much or way too much money on. Car or a pair of shoes. And what happens the first time you scratch that car or you scuff those shoes? Hmm? Hmm? Mm-hmm, all right. 
It eats us up inside. And there is a clue there. Again, I'm not saying don't have a car, don't have shoes, but there is a clue there about how it eats us up inside when something scratches our dear possession. This is a spiritual insight. We need to attack those attachments, those undue attachments to the material things that we have in our lives. And then we can enjoy them and also see the bigger picture of what God calls us into. Number three, trust in true identity. And here's where we get to baptism. You see, the man and his barns had his identity wrapped up in those barns. But we know, and Charlotte knows, and Robert knows, that a true identity is wrapped up in baptism, being a daughter or a son of the Most High God. I remember one time when I was a young priest down in Florida, I went into a restaurant in Stewart, I think it was called Tijuana Flats, and the young person behind the counter, she probably hadn't seen a priest before, because she saw me in my collar and my black shirt and my cross, and she said, so, what are you? <laughs> I had never been asked that before. It was a very logical question and a sort of existential question at the same time. What are you? Well, I said, well, I'm a minister at this church called St. Mary's. But, Mac, what I should have said is I am a baptized Christian. I am a son of the Most High God. I am an heir of Jesus Christ and his riches of eternity. And you know where that comes from. Some of the most important language in baptism comes to us from Romans and Galatians. I want to just take a minute and read to you this right now. And parents and godparents, please hear this. We cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Did you catch that? Co-heirs with Christ. Everything that belongs to Jesus Christ, if you've been baptized, he gives to you by grace. You are a co-heir with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Today, Charlotte and Robert are being united with and to Jesus Christ gets even better in Galatians. It says, you are all sons of God, though faith in Jesus Christ through faith in Jesus Christ. For all who have been baptized into Christ, you have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs, there's that word again, according to the promise. Be an heir of Christ. Have that be the trust in your true identity. You're doing great. We're almost there. <laughs> Last one. Put your money in motion. Money in motion. One of the great tragedies of the story of the man is that all his wealth is locked up in these barns and it goes to no good. But if you put your wealth in motion, then it becomes a tool. And it doesn't matter if you have a little bit of money or you have a lot of money. This is not a story about being rich or poor in the middle. Whatever money that God has given you, if you put that into motion, extraordinary things can happen. I'll tell you just a quick story and then we'll close up. A man named Millard Fuller and his wife, Linda. He was a self-made millionaire by the age of 29. But 
he and his wife felt a calling to a small Christian community in Georgia. And they lived in common, they sold their possessions. And do you know, it was there that Millard and Linda came up with a little idea to build houses with no interest. And people would then come and help work on the houses and then live in the houses. That organization became Habitat for Humanity. And to this date, 29 million people have been helped by Habitat for Humanity, all because of Millard and Linda Fuller taking their money and putting it into motion. You see, friends, when your identity is in Christ Jesus, when you realize that baptism is the one thing in life that can't be taken away, when you are sealed by the Holy Spirit and marked as Christ's own forever, and that becomes the core of your identity, then you can use money as a tool. You can use power as a tool. You can use influence as a tool to the glory of God and the welfare of his people. But only if you are able to see Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, became poor for you, and be clothed in him so that you can be sons or daughters of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all of you were baptized into Christ and have clothed yourselves with Christ. So there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, which you do, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.